So Saudi Arabia knows that it's extremely vulnerable. It is the week of May 24th, and welcome to episode 81 of Fault Lines, the National Security Institute's podcast that explores the disagreements between the political left and right on issues of national security and foreign policy. Today, NSI senior fellow Lester Munson will be doing a deep dive with Sada Cumber, NSI advisory board member, former U.S. ambassador to the Organization of the Islamic Conference, and author of the recent article, Shiism, Iran, and a New Path Forward. Ambassador Cumber, thanks for joining us. Well, thank you very much, Les, and thanks uh, to NSI Washington for inviting me, and I'm very excited. Good. We are, we are thrilled to have you. So, you were the first U.S. ambassador to the Organization of the Islamic Conference. For those of us who aren't as familiar with this as others, can you tell us what that group is and what role it plays in international relations? So the OIC is a 57-nation intergovernmental organization created, I believe, in 1979, no, uh, with a membership consisting mainly of Muslim-majority nations. Originally, the Organization of Islamic Conference in 2011, it was formally switched its name to Organization of Islamic Cooperation. What happens is that uh, you have to have 30% of your population Muslim to join this. So we already always had issues with India on this because India always wanted to join, but the majority of the other countries would uh, would disallow. So I tried very hard after president appointed me to go to India, visited the leadership there, but I was not successful because there was too much opposition to bring India because of that 30% clause in there. I think the most uh, simple, succinct description is that the OIC is a kind of a mini UN. UN has over 190 members and this has 57. And I think the third largest is Commonwealth Conference. It actually mirrors the UN closely in both form and function. Its goals include promoting solidarity among member states and serving, I believe, as a permanent forum for discussing subjects of mutual concern um, to, the, to the member community. Now, to put the organization into some context, its member states cover 22% of the world's landmass and represents about 1.5 billion out of 1.8 billion Muslims. Very interesting to know less is that 70% of all natural resources that this globe has been endowed with on this earth are in geography controlled by OIC member countries, 70%. Um, traditionally, the relationship between US and OIC has been one of mutual suspicion, I would say, while the OIC is more fragmented and moderate than the handful of small Islamic other nations. Now, there are some nations who are friendly, which is like Pakistan, KSA, which is Saudi Arabia, Egypt, Jordan, and Gulf, and many others. But we do have in the, in the OIC some nations which are not very favorable or friendly with the, with the U.S., but in the wake of uh, September 11, President Bush was uh, interested in changing that dynamic, believing there would be an opportunity for both parties. In specific, he saw advantages to having 
to kind of working relationship with an organization enabling us us a very quick reach into 57 muslim nations at one point with a targeted and fo- focused message that we wanted to share with the world the muslim world that is where i was honored to be tapped by president bush to become the point person on this initiative as the first us special envoy to the oic so let's the the first i think there there have been some notable successes regarding the oic and dealing with terrorists and terrorism when i became the special envoy of president bush and i wanted to see if there could be more done in partnership with the oic to put terrorists further on the defensive and while that was a genuine common ground here we also made it clear that some of the things they wanted from us in terms of recognition and increasing the organization prestige i negotiated was would be hinged upon something tangible from there that we can receive and i remember having those kind of conversation but i think in the first month of my my or second first month i believe of my appointment um it was probably october first week of october the end of october 2009 when secretary general at that time um, a turkish diplomat uh, iklamuddin sanahulu issued a a very strong con- condemnation of suicide bombing using language such as abhorrent criminal x and uh, and the culprits of such heinous acts are the enemies of islam he issued that as well as noting that suicide bombing has been condemned by both sunni and shia scholars and the ulamas and the religious faith leaders so that came out as a first success story for us because we were able to get out of that strong statement from oic and i think that was a diplomatic win for united states and i believe for you oic also because oic felt that they are more engaged with the western communities before uh, than before and one i think i hope that this can be an outgoing uh, ongoing tool for the smart power for us to use that having been said it has its limitation and as ngos have noted there are broader issues regarding oic's capacity to tackle uh, terrorism because it is much bigger than it was first i think the oic is an intergovernmental organization the most extensive actors of suicide bombings or other forms of terrorists and terrorism you have to realize less that they are non state actors such as isis boko haram taliban al qaeda and many are not only not not uh, kind of a state but as with isis by definition the view of nation comprising membership and including the oic itself the isis saw that as an illegitimate uh, form of governments and the organizations so we were having a lot of issues to pressure oic because these non actors were not part of the institutions that were part or the government that were part of oic second there are 57 nations in oic and many of which are far away from terrorism it might seem paradoxical but these nations actually less are some of the very concerned and careful to take on these issues of terrorism and oic because the problem with them and when i would travel countries like malaysia bangladesh nigeria senegal indonesia 
all of these countries would would basically I would tell them to listen. You need to come out very strong uh, and make those kind of statement against terrorism. And they would say, well, we do not have resources or capacities, and we may become target of them if we criticize them and condemn them. So they were concerned about that also. So it was almost like no news is good news and out of sight, out of mind attitude of some of these countries. And in, in, in actuality, unfortunately, I'm kind of worried that this will ever get a, if this issue will ever get a comprehensive unified understanding that we will all have of terrorism. This is too much temptation for states to look the other way. When national interests are involved, even in a more optimistic framing, one person terrorism looks a lot like another's distorted warfare of independence or whatever they call it. this. They said they had their right to do it because they have been occupied. So those statements also I was listing at that time. And for this reason, I think the approach that we took as a US with the OIC in 2009 was prudent one. By totally sidestepping the question of what constitute a terrorist group or ideology, and we were able to focus on specific acts, it avoids a lot of difficulties, as I have referenced uh, above. Sada, in, in Myanmar, prior to the coup, there was a genocide being perpetrated against the Rohingya by the Buddhist majority. What happened and how did religious and cultural divisions play into the problem? Oh my goodness, what an interesting question. Now, you have to see that uh, when it comes to Islam, uh, South Asia, Central Asia, Middle East, had presence of Islam going back almost the 8th century. And especially if you read the history of Myanmar, which used to be Burma, Islam actually was there, uh, it has been there for a thousand years. Uh, then you see the Mughals uh, empire that came from Central Asia into India and ruled them for probably another couple of hundred years. And at that time, Burma and what you see South Asia, especially subcontinent, they were all part of the Mughal empire. So there was a huge presence of Islam by default into all of these countries, including India and Burma and, and Myanmar. Then came the British colonial time there. And the Britishers then came in and they ruled that for another 200 years. And they were, of course, first time they were able to bring these people from, from, from Bengal into Burma. And this is where I think the conflict really started, where they saw each other as two different cultures and civilization. And that I think it continues even today. However, you cannot understand the situation of Memar without, Memar uh, um, did not come up with this idea of its own. I think the British of course, famously played ethnic groups against each other. And when Memar, if you see Burma, I think they got their independence in 1948. And at that time, if you see the ethnic minority and especially the Muslims and the, and the Buddhist, they actually worked together. I remember there was a prime minister of the country who was actually South Asian Muslim. So it worked out well until 
the military got interested in ruling that country. What military has done less is that they have not only isolated the country, and if you see Myanmar today, and if you really physically visit there, you'd be shocked how backward that country is. They put a little brakes on the progress. I mean, you see the countries around it. Now, Myanmar also has a, a 1,300 or 1,800-mile border, almost like Texas and New Mexico, like Texas and Mexico having their border in the south. So, so China is sitting there like a big daddy there supporting them, the military there. So now look at the, now how deeply Islam was involved and engaged into it. I'll give you some personal examples here. My son, Ali Kumber, that lives in your part of the world, Washington, he has married to Sophia Lalani, who's actually the director of uh, uh, foreign affairs and, and defense to, to, for uh, Senator Cory Booker. Sophia's mother actually is from Burma. Amina, and they have heritage of several generations going back and they were booted out, I think in late 1960s, as late as 1960s, I think 68 or 67. My niece, Dr. Salima is married to Aziz, his family the same way they are Burmese. They came in several generations, forefathers, finally they were booted out and they moved to, I think, uh, wherever now they live in Texas or whatever they have choices. Of land. So Islam has always been part of the of the this dysfunctional environment. What has happened is that because of the rigid, I think, ethnic classification in Myanmar, legal and political system, the right ethnic label comes from the claim to the land as well as legal identity. The wrong label denies them. You know, when the, they were doing uh, the, the, what do you call the uh, um, census, the way they were doing the census, the Muslims were actually encouraged not to register because they said, as soon as you will register, they will brand you as a minority and as an illegal alien and forever you will lose your right. And that worked actually, because right now they cannot give them any residency or citizenship because they see themselves as illegal aliens. And you can see what is happening um, in terms of their, their I mean, you know, people are being raped, abused, and they're running and taking shelter into, into Bangladesh. And if you go to Bangladesh today and just see the condition of these people living in refugee camps, it's pathetic. And, and, and what is happening is that uh, it, now it has completely come to the point where us versus them and this nationalist uh, Buddhist leadership. And you, if you look at the message of Buddha himself, he traveled 40 years to spread the word of peace and calm and, and live in tranquility. And his people today are, are doing this kind of damage to the minorities, which is pretty shameful, I would say. In, in now, what has happened is that that is not to say that relationship with the majority were harmonious ever. But then again, I think the West has little latitude in Myanmar 
than China because China actually just imposes upon them these conditions. And there is a large group of people in Burma, Myanmar, especially, of course, within, under the leadership of uh, the, the, uh, the young lady, what is her name? Uh, Aung San Sing Sun Ki? Aung San Suu Kyi. Right. Under her leadership, you know, we got some uh, governments uh, elected. But then again, I think she was under such deep um, pressure from the military that she could not handle or do anything for the, for the, for the safety and security of these Rohingyas, which are the Muslims uh, who are from Bengal. And I had, my thought was that in the, this coming election, if she wins, then this would push the army into the barricades where they really belong. But unfortunately, after the election, uh, they declare a coup, and now she's under house arrest. So at some point in time, I think um, the Muslim civil leadership have, has been under pressure. Um, I think the recent coup, as I said, now a intriguing possibility would be a grand bargain that the U.S. could endeavor to facilitate. But of course, for that, the civil government and its supporters with ethnic minorities, they can have to come in power. In, the, in this, the latter has to take an active role in restoring civil rule, but exchanging for lessening of tedious ethnic politics. Of course, the question are whether there are collective political acumen is up to the task and whether Myanmar can escape this institutional history in this regard, and China will not allow that. So we have two sitting powers there, China, and the national uh, Buddhists. So we are stuck here till we are able to form a government which is elected by the people and that can push the military back into barricades. So Sada, you, <clears throat> you mentioned China, uh, where of course the government uh, is perpetrating what our government has called a genocide against the Uyghur Muslim minority. Uh, so qu my question is, why, why are Muslim-majority countries not leading the charge against these human rights abuses? What's, what's the, what is going on here? So, so before I, I respond to your, your uh, primary question as to why Muslim-majority countries are standing on the side, um, can I, if you allow me, I want to share with you some historical background. You have my permission. Thank you, sir. So the quick review of who the Uyghurs are and what the Chinese campaign against them look like is how I see this. The Uyghurs have been ruled by Chinese, I believe, base uh, state since mid 18th century. So longer that the United States has been around actually. This has actually insulated them, the Muslim community, the Uyghurs, from the broader trends of Islamic civilization, allowing them to evolve into a very unique community on its own. Now, nationalism arrived in 1930s as an import from Soviet Union at that time, because from Soviet, actually Central Asian countries at that time. This includes the Soviet Union stroking Uyghur separatist. Remember, we are, we are going to talk about separatist. We are going to talk about the communist uh, uh, 
doctrine and we're going to talk about uh, the terrorist uh, organization like al-qaeda and all that so there are three elements that we need to talk about it before we before i answer you your question so there were separatists that put so soviet union actually started this campaign of separatist movement in in in, in xinjiang um in in 1930s to put pressure but nothing is remotely on par with what we have seen in recent years which is engagement from al-qaeda taliban and isis trying to penetrate this this province which has eight million muslims living there so there are three areas that i want to talk about china the communist doctrine has no room for practice of faith in religion they do not want the communist chinese to believe in any other ideology but the communist ideology and they see every religion as an ideology so they are this they're constantly putting pressure on people when it comes to practice of faith now the difference between islam christianity is 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 that islam as a faith is a is a way of life is the word islam means submission to the will of god so islam when it comes to practice is part of our practice if we are within the government or outside or we are in the business because the values and the ethics that are given to us we have to apply in our daily lives so prayers and practice of faith and rituals are very important and that china does not understand they feel that like other communities they can suppress this thing and they have failed to do that and i tell you they will fail to do this this will be always a problem for them number two they were always having problem with the separatists now what happened is when the al-qaeda and the terrorists all of that happened they took upon themselves and said said this is the best opportunities to suppress in the name of terrorism the separatist and we can put more pressure on them for the for the ideology and the doctrine of communism and i think and i and let me let me dissect little and share with you again when i was traveling as a as a us special envoy these countries who are in like indonesia and bangladesh and senegal and i said they would tell me clearly they would say you go back mr ambassador and tell your president that what is happening in northern pakistan afghanistan and and iraq is coming to us and we do not have the capacity or the resources to face these people because they are very dangerous people and and less today you and i know that all of these countries have these al qaedas of the world have penetrated the talibans and the isis have penetrated them so they were correct it was coming their way now one more anecdote before i answer you further i was talking to the highest officials in russia when i was traveling and this russian leader told me he said we claim our claim to fame is that we watch every single individual citizen movement and we have level of 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 uh, you know how we watch people and he says when it comes to chechnya the revolt and the terrorist activities when the chechnya remember there was this uh, what was a terror or something they went in and killed so many of the people there and these were terrorists that had penetrated chechnya from al qaedas of the world and talibans the russian leader told me he said we were completely blindsided that so much arm 
had penetrated into Chechnya and we had no clue. Now, you have to give credit to China that China did not allow these terrorists to make any penetration into it. Because China as a country, I mean, you see any Muslim countries, they are, they are suffering from these uh, terrorists uh, organization making inroads into their, their, their governments and their people. China was able to, but what they did, China did was in the process of mitigating, they also took the advantage of saying, let's take in the name of terrorism, Muslims. We will also deal with the separatists. We will also deal with the all Muslims, all of them. So they took 2 million of them, which is almost 25%, 20% of their population and moved into the, into the central, um, North central China and then moved Hans and, and Cantonese became people from Canton, Canton to people into this region and gave them privileged land and privileged position in the military and the government while suppressing more these Muslim beggars. That's where I think they're stuck now. They don't know what to do. Because if China feels that they can get away by getting rid of Islam, it ain't happening. Now what happened? Now I'm answering your question. 30 plus countries in the West wrote a letter to China that this is what they're doing is wrong. 22 plus countries, Muslim majority countries, including Saudi Arabia and Pakistan, were part of the letter of 22 countries that China sent back to the Western countries saying, look, these Muslim majority countries feel that we are doing fine. And we are okay. We are not doing what you think we are doing. And the reason less was that they only saw, those Muslim majority country, countries only saw the work that they had done to avoid terrorist action, not separatists, not that they are literally killing the whole faith of Islam by destroying mosques and, and, and raising the homes of these people and moving them. The Muslim countries have failed to see. So yes, I agree with you. Number two, all these Muslim countries, including Pakistan and others who have signed this, are part of the Belt and Road Project. So they cannot, they see their own interest in what is happening with Uyghurs. And I think that's one of the reasons economic benefit. Plus China, by doing working with them, they're also allowing them to maintain their illegitimate governments in there. Because today, if you see in the Muslim majority countries, very few are true democratic countries. So, so China is being very helpful to them by supporting them, but not necessarily pushing them towards democracy or one person or one rule. So those are two reasons I think that the Muslim majority countries are on the sitting on the sideline. So Sada, I, I want to get your take on, uh, on reports that there has been a meeting between uh, officials from Saudi Arabia and Iran, both of which, of course, are, are very important countries in the Muslim world. Uh, they do not have the same uh, exact same faith approach, of course, and there are some geopolitical differences. But what is what is your what is what are your thoughts on this meeting between Saudis and Iranians? Well, I think um, um, 
the, both of them, I think geopolitical condition or situation has forced them to come together because they, they were running out of options. And, 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 uh, and for all the listeners uh, um, today who may have missed it, but in mid-April, as you said, the Financial Times reported, I think that Iran and Saudi Arabia have engaged in secret talks, secret talks. Additional uh, classified that these talks actually represented a, a significant diplomatic initiative. Um, the countries have been meeting since, by the way, January, discussing uh, long-standing regional issues. So your question is, why? Obviously, there will be hard conversations. These nations have engaged in the Cold War since the Iranian Revolution in 1979 in which the king was ousted. And by the way, the, in the Middle East, the Shah of Iran was the first king who in the Middle East was, who was ousted at that time. Iran and Saudi Arabia stand on opposite sides of almost every major issue in the Middle East, as you said. But despite all of that, I think I see reasons for optimism here. The big one is that both nations have publicly acknowledged of the talks, meaning that they have committed political capital to something tangible that may come out of this. So they are hoping for that. As reported, I think the main focus has been Yemen. After years of proxy war that we have been reading about between the countries, it is clear that Saudi Arabia has failed to achieve military success. And both countries have taken international hits for their involvement in Saudi Arabia sees and its infrastructure has clear uh, vulnerability to Houthi's rocket. And they have seen that. Now we also know that Syria and Lebanon, and by the way, I need to share with you something that when those uh, drones went and attacked the oil uh, uh, tanks in Saudi Arabia, they were drone attacks sent from Iran that actually moved to, to east and went up over so the Israel can also see and they were targeting with, with almost 90% accuracy. And I tell you that rattled Saudi Arabia. It was United States of America that saved at that point because I think President Trump came on very strong for Iran and sent a message saying you can't do that. So Saudi Arabia knows that it's extremely vulnerable uh, when it comes to the Houthi. We also know that Syria and Lebanon are also proxy rivalry. They have also been discussed. There are other things I hope uh, they are talking about, which I think they'll be talking about Israel and Palestine. Palestine. Both Riyadh and Tehran risk consequences if that situation spirals more out of the control than it has most recently. And I'm also seeing less that I hope that they are talking about US withdrawal from Afghanistan. Now, Saudi Arabia's dismay at this is understandable, but while it may not be obvious for Iran, it is a mixed blessings. Because Iran at Tehran is happy to see America's 20 year presence in Afghanistan ending with arguable results and removed of US assets, which could threaten Iran from the East. So Iran is also concerned of that. 
it must now cope up with an unstable power vacuum, which could become a problem for Tehran because they are sitting right at the border in Afghanistan. And while it's probably not happening now, at some point, they should talk about energy because it's a pillar of power for both countries. Now it's clear that you and I understand that we are moving towards a world where fossil fuels plays a much smaller role and confer less power and prestige. Both Iran and Saudi Arabia would benefit from discussing what that means for their future, if there's an opportunity, if they become friends. So why now? Iran has proclaimed its openness to dialogue for years. Of course, what countries say, what they say is not what they mean. And I'll tell you a personal story. I would be traveling to these parts of the world and I would be meeting uh, the head of states and the foreign ministers and everything else. And less when we come out of these meetings, the media would be standing there and ask us, what did you discuss? And we both will have three or four points that we will tell them what we discuss about. And by the way, inside the room, we never discussed all of those three or four. It was just to feed the media. So I'm sure a lot of that will be going on as it goes on every day. Now, until a few years back, Saudi Arabia rejected the possibility of any, any dialogue with Iran, even two years back. But I think through Houthi rockets, and especially the 219 Iranian drone attack, as I said, through Armco facility, very deeply disturbed Saudi Arabia, seeing that the economic infrastructure it depends uh, is vulnerable. I think it is willing to expend political capital to safeguard that assets. And there are costs of conflict and potential conflict in Yemen and elsewhere, but something else also has changed. After two dec decades in the Middle East, I think the Biden administration is pivoting away from to East Asia, as we have heard and read in our And that the Biden administration has signaled a willingness, willingness to be more critical of Riyadh than the outgoing recent administration. And you and I know about that. All of that may sound good for Iran, but be careful what you wish for. Reduce US involvement could encourage more open and explicit cooperation between Tehran regional rivals, which is Israel, Saudi Arabia, Gulf countries, which we have already seen. They have signed the relationship agreements. Absent the certainty of US security umbrella, it could also push a Sunni nation to acquire a nuclear weapon that would virtually force Iran to follow through on what it already has this program with all the consequences that could bring. So, so in many ways, they would love to talk, but in many ways they are like, this is not good for us because you have to realize that both of these countries are, are, are not a highly democratic representing the people interest, or they're not focused on citizen focus. Uh, ideologies that they bring. That's a wrap. As always, Fault Lines is produced by the National Security Institute. Find out more about the Institute and upcoming events at nationalsecurity.gmu.edu. If you have any topics you'd like us to cover in the future, send us an email at nsi.gmu.edu or tweet us at MasonNatSec. If you like what we're doing here, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe so that more people can find our show. We'd like to thank Claude Jennings for editing, Lester Munson for hosting, and Grant Haver for producing and directing. Join us next week for another provocative conversation and further analysis of national security's fault lines.